Tonight we're back in our study, Why a Baptist? Uh, in our study, we are looking at a section, or we are in a section looking at Baptist distinctives. These are the things or the truths that Baptists hold in common. If you were to say to somebody, what is a Baptist, or to, or to ask the question, why, why, uh, what does it mean to be a Baptist? These are the things that you would hear. These are the core beliefs of a Baptist follower of Jesus Christ. Now, again, we're in a section on these Baptist distinctives. Uh, so far, we have looked at three of them. For a very quick review, uh, we saw the first distinctive is the Bible. Baptists believe that the Bible is the inspired, inerrant, authoritative, sufficient Word of God. Each of those words have a great meaning. We believe that truth uh, of our Bible. It is where we turn in all matters of life and in faith and in practice. Uh, we are people of the Word. It is what we preach, what we teach, what we uphold, and what we stand on. It is the, the Word of God. So that is the very first Baptist distinctive. The second distinctive uh, is known as the priesthood of the believer. Tied to that is what is also known as soul liberty. Uh, what that means is as Baptists, uh, we believe each individual has equal access to God. Uh, as a result of that, therefore, each individual, individual is responsible uh, to God. And so there is no go-between uh, other than our mediator, Jesus. Uh, there is no hierarchy. There is not a priest that we have to go to. Uh, there is no position uh, that has a more favorable ear with God. Each individual has equal footing, each equal access uh, before God. Uh, soul liberty is the truth that each person is able to make the decision uh, to obey or to disobey, uh, to follow Christ or to reject Jesus Christ. And for that, tied to that, they are responsible for that decision. Doesn't matter who their parents were, doesn't matter what their lineage is or was, doesn't matter uh, what their spouse is or, or, or how they pray, uh, they are able to make a decision to walk in obedience, to walk in disobedience, uh, to accept Christ or to reject Christ, and they are responsible for that decision. The third distinctive that we looked at uh, is the autonomy of the local church. Uh, that means as Baptists, we believe uh, each local assembly of believers, each church, is self-governed. Uh, we are under the uh, singular headship of Jesus. Uh, there is no body that is over us. There's no assembly that's over us. There's not a diocese. Uh, there's not a synod. There's not a convention uh, that is over us in our local church. Uh, as a local church, we seek God's direction through his word. We seek his wisdom through prayer. And then we are self-directed uh, as an individual church under the headship of Jesus Christ. We believe that. That is a foundational belief uh, that we hold. Well, that catches us up uh, tonight as we get ready to move along. The next Baptist distinctive is uh, the truth that the church uh, the Baptist church has or recognizes two ordinances. And so we believe there are two ordinances of the local church and there are two ordinances alone. There's not three, there's not five. Uh, we believe there are two ordinances 
of the local church. Now let me explain the language here. An ordinance is an act done in obedience to a command. So what is an ordinance? Uh, it's not just something we observe, but it is an act done in obedience to a command. And so we believe Jesus told us in the practice of the New Testament church, uh, we are to do these two things. Very simply, Jesus commanded us as the local church, uh, here are two things to do in the practice of your church. Here are two commands uh, to obey in the practice of your local church. And so in, as an ordinance, we obey those commands. Um, one of those is believer's baptism. The other is the observance of the Lord's Supper. So those are the two ordinances of the local church. One of them is believer's baptism. The other is uh, the Lord's Supper. I want to be sure and say here and understand uh, the differences in language. These are ordinances and they are not sacraments. Uh, sometimes people get that mixed up. Sometimes they're well-meaning when they mix those words up. Uh, these are ordinances of the church. They are not sacraments. A sacrament is an action or a practice that God uses to impart either salvation or to impart or to give grace. And so on that idea, we receive something. We receive God's grace or we receive salvation from God in doing something. And so a sacrament is an act that you would do. And when you do the act, you receive something from God, either his grace or salvation. Now, we do not hold that as Baptists. We do not believe that. Of our two ordinances, we believe they are not sacramental. Be sure of that. But we do believe they are symbolic. Now, that, that has a, a great impact for us. Now, these two things symbolize something else or they remind us of something else. And so the two acts now, they're not for no reason, but they are symbolic. They are to symbolize something or they are to remind us of something. And so our two ordinances are symbolic in nature. All right, we're going to look at each of them individually. The first ordinance of the church that we hold as Baptists, uh, it is the act of believers' baptism. According to Jesus, we believe we are to practice believers' baptism. Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 and 19, it says this, and Jesus came up, so it's Jesus, and spoke to them, these are the disciples, saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth, verse 19, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Verse 20, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and behold, lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. And so we see there, talking to the disciples, Jesus gives the command that we are to baptize followers of Jesus Christ. And let me walk you through a couple important pieces of that. Now, the first thing that we see is the mode matters. Sometimes folks say, well, it doesn't matter. It's just the idea that matters. Uh, the mode, how we do it, the method actually matters. Um, it is by immersion. You hear me say that all the time. And it is an immersion in water. 
Uh, the word, the Greek word for baptize in the New Testament, it means to immerse. If you look it up, if you translate it, it actually means to immerse. Um, in the New Testament, it is always, baptism is always by immersion. Now, let me just tell you this. You start in Matthew, go all the way to the book of Revelation, there is not one account in the New Testament scripture of any person being baptized in any way, any method, other than by immersion. The New Testament mode, it is by immersion. Uh, you, you can go in the book of John, John the Baptist, uh, all the gospel accounts, he's baptizing in the Jordan River. It says uh, that after he baptized Jesus, when he came up out of the water. Well, think about that. To come up out of the water, uh, you have to go down into the water. And so Jesus' baptism, it was by immersion. Uh, there's several other examples as well. The Ethiopian eunuch, uh, remember he's traveling along. He gets the scroll. Uh, he realizes what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Upon putting his faith in Christ, Here's what he says. They're riding along in a chariot. He says, see, here is water. There is water. Uh, one of the translations says, here, here is much water. What hinders me from being baptized? What an awesome picture. He sees much water. Hey, there's enough water to be baptized. What would keep me from being baptized? Let me, let me go ahead and answer a question here. Why does the mode, why does the method matter? The reason it matters is because it is a picture. Baptism, remember, it is symbolic in nature. It is a picture. It is a picture, think about it, of going in a grave, of being buried in a grave, and coming out of a grave. It's exactly that picture, covered over, coming back out. Um, it is a picture of what we believe of Jesus, that he died, that he was buried, that he is resurrected, it is a picture of what we believe has happened to us. We have died in and with Christ. We now live in and through Jesus Christ. And so understand this, if you change the mode, if you change the method, you change the picture. And so there's, there's a lot of denominations that have a different method, but in changing the method, they change the picture. Let me give you an example here. If I were to tell you tonight, I love Carrie. I love her. And she's the most beautiful person I've ever seen. And I, I like to, to talk about how beautiful he is. she is. And I have a picture of her. And I just tell you, man, her picture, I've got it on my desk. And I've got it in my pickup. And I love this picture of her. And I want to tell you how pretty she is, how beautiful she is. And I have a picture of Carrie. And if I were to turn around my picture and it were to be of my favorite car, you'd say, well, that's not Carrie. And I'd say, yeah, but... But I do think she's beautiful, but you say, that's not the same picture. That would be the same thing that would happen if we had a different mode, if we had a different method. Hey, that doesn't look like the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. That doesn't look like what has happened to us when we put our faith in Christ. Listen to this. If you change the method, the New Testament method, you change the picture of what we're talking about, what we're pointing to in the testimony of baptism. Second thing we see here in, in, this, in this understanding is also the meaning matters. The mode matters, the method matters, the meaning matters. Uh, the, the meaning is uh, it signifies this person has trusted Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. 
When you see somebody baptized, that is, the, that is the meaning. What does it mean? This person has trusted Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And let me tell you, it's, it's kind of odd, especially for an adult to say, I'm going to go and I'm going to walk in here and if somebody's going to dunk me down in this water, I'm going to be immersed, I'm going to come back out of it. Uh, but there is no mistaking what it means. This person believes these truths of our Savior Jesus, believes these truths of themselves in Jesus. I always give the example when I explain to folks uh, the example of the wedding ring. A wedding ring tells people you're married. Does it make you married? No. When you put it on, do you become married at that point? No. Uh, but it is a symbol pointing to the fact, relaying the truth that you're married. I always tell, tell, tell the kids when I baptize them, if you were to put on a wedding ring when you're 11, does that make you married? No, it just makes you a weird kid going around with a wedding ring when you're 11. Baptism tells the story. Baptism has the meaning that you are a follower of Jesus Christ. Also notice this. We call it, and you hear it all, hear all the time, the testimony of baptism. This is the testimony of baptism. It is symbolic. It symbolizes something, meaning it reminds of something. Uh, it, is, it is symbolic. So what that means is baptism is a sermon. It is a sermon that says, hey, this is the truth of Jesus. This is the truth of who I am in and because of Jesus. If you have been baptized in, in believer's baptism, then you have preached a sermon. Folks say, well, I would never preach a sermon. I'm kind of shy. If you've been baptized, you've preached a sermon, you've declared the truth of what Jesus has done, that he's, he's died for sin, risen again, that he stands alive as our Savior, and you've preached what has happened to you. Notice this. We, we just saw it. Notice this. And when baptisms take place, and when baptisms start taking place, you ever notice this? More baptisms start taking place. And when we're baptizing folks, there's people wondering, I wonder what it means about my walk with Christ. I wonder what I should do in obedience to what Christ has said. Kids start going home and saying, why was, was Fred baptizing? What does that mean for him? Why haven't I been baptized? And when baptisms start taking place, that sermon is preached, that testimony is made known, and I, I believe the pattern is more baptisms take place. We need to say this, and I want to be sure and say this. However, be sure, it is important. It is a command of Christ. We do it as an ordinance and obedience to Christ, but however, be sure, it does not save you. Your sins are not washed away in baptism. Sometimes I hear folks say, well, better change that water after they go. Uh, your sins are not washed away in baptism. Uh, we're saved by God's grace. I received in faith when we put our faith and our trust in Jesus Christ. Ephesians 2 is very clear of that. Now, you may sit there and you may say, well, there are some that say that it does save you. In fact, there's probably many that would say that it does save you. Um, what is your answer to that? And they would say, well, here's some verses. I, I think there's uh, two or three that, that could be misinterpreted. Some say as many as five verses but what about the verses that seem to imply this? Let me just go ahead and walk you through them. Um, 
I believe they are based on a faulty understanding and interpretation of those verses. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 21 says, and baptism now saves you. There are folks that will say, well, what about that verse? It's very clear in Scripture. I'm going to go with what the Bible says. Well, if you go to those verses, if you go to those verses in context, it is talking about immersion in Christ, putting on the person of Jesus Christ. We do that by faith in Christ. That section of verses is actually telling us it is not water baptism that saves us. It is putting on Christ that saves us. And so it's a faulty interpretation and understanding of that verse. Uh, Acts chapter 2, verse 38 says, Repent and be baptized. There are some folks that go there and say that's what the Bible says. Um, very shortly after that, uh, there is the flip of that explained to us, and, and the person uh, is not told to be not saved because they're not baptized. And so the inverse does not hold true. Uh, in that verse, in another verse, uh, we do see the New Testament pattern is uh, the two events are very closely related. When a person put their faith in Christ, the way they told others was to go through baptism. And so it wasn't part of their salvation. It was very quickly demonstrating, telling others that they had been saved. A very similar verse, Mark 16, 16. And he who has believed and been baptized shall be saved. Exact same thing in the pattern of the, of the day. Uh, baptism very quickly uh, followed the point of salvation by faith. It was their testimony. Uh, exact same way you go to, to Mark 16, go down from there. Uh, it says, he who doesn't believe uh, is not saved. That's two verses down. It has nowhere in there the inverse uh, talking about baptism. It's left out there. Understand this. You can be sure of this. The overwhelming testimony of Scripture is we are justified, made right with God by faith in Jesus Christ. Listen very carefully. We are saved alone by faith in Jesus Christ and not of any work that a man would do unless a person would boast. Romans chapter 4, verses 3 through 5, tell us that. Romans chapter 10, verses 8, 9, and 10, tell us that. Romans chapter 3, verses 23 through 26, tell us that. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, clearly tell us that. Acts chapter 15, verses 8 and 9, tell us that. Philippians chapter 3, verses 8 and 9, tell us that. Galatians chapter 3, verses 5 and 6, there's at least three places in the book of Galatians, tell us that. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, we're saved, we're sealed with the Holy Spirit of God, tells us that. Acts chapter 10, verse 47, tell us that. The overwhelming testimony of Scripture is we are saved by faith in Jesus Christ alone. Why does that matter? Some folks say, well, it doesn't matter, does it? Why does that matter? I want to get very real with you here. The reason it matters is because it changes the gospel. And I believe it transmits the idea that if we have to do something as people to be saved, to experience God's gracious salvation, it transmits the idea that there is something left undone. And so what it means is the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ for sinners is not enough. 
It, it is faith in that and something else. It is baptism added to that. And so it transmits the idea that we have something to do to be saved. We have something to add to the gospel in order to be saved. We are saved by God's grace, the scripture tells us, through faith in Jesus Christ alone. It does matter. It transmits a wrong idea of the gospel that people have to do something in order to be saved. What needs to be done for our salvation is finished in the work of Jesus Christ. We are saved by faith in him alone. One last, one last thing on the subject, and it's just kind of a friend's thing thrown in, but we might as well say it here. We'll probably never get a chance to say it somewhere else. Notice when we baptize as Baptists, we baptize in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. When we baptize, we're baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now you might say, well, why, why does that matter? First off, uh, we believe in a Trinitarian God. Um, we testify to that in our baptism. But more than that, it's what Jesus tells us. Remember our verses in Matthew? Jesus says to baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Uh, there is a movement. It, it's kind of grown. It peaks. Uh, sometimes it, it comes back. Uh, it is based in oneness Pentecostalism. Uh, I think that the Christian church gives you the option, uh, but you can be baptized in the name of Jesus alone. Some of them have different reasons for that. Uh, we believe it's in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, um, and not in the name of Jesus alone. All right, that is the first ordinance uh, that we hold to in the Baptist church. The second ordinance is that of the Lord's Supper. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 through 26. You can just listen. I'll read this to you. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 through 26. Paul says this, For I received from the Lord, from Jesus, that which I also delivered to you. And so I gave you the command, but I received it from Jesus. That the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Verse 26, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so again, just like Jesus gave the command for baptism, Jesus also gives the command to the church uh, to, to participate in uh, the Lord's Supper. Jesus gives this command uh, that we would remember his death. Now, I, I've actually preached a sermon on that. Uh, that is an interesting thing. Jesus says, remember his death. I think we would naturally remember his life. Uh, we like to talk about him walking on water. We like to talk about the feeding of the 5,000. We like to go back and look at and recite the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, we would naturally, I think, remember his life. We for sure would remember his resurrection. He is not here. He is alive. Uh, we would talk about our resurrected Savior. Here's the truth, and I think we see it happening in a lot of places. However, we might overlook his death. 
You know what? We don't want to talk about his death. We don't want to talk about the pain of his death, the suffering of his death. Some churches, we don't want to sing the songs about the blood of his death that might uh, run somebody off that comes to our church. Jesus says the gospel includes the death of Jesus. That is where our sins are paid for. And so the church needs to bring back into view and remember the death of Jesus. The church does this to remember the death of Jesus. Now also, it is also symbolic. The bread represents his body. It is not his body. Um, There's an idea, I'll just touch on it for a second. Transubstantiation. Uh, That is the idea, that is the belief that when a certain point of the, the Lord's Supper takes place, that the bread actually becomes the body of Christ and that the blood actually literally becomes the, the, the juice becomes the blood of Jesus. Uh, it's called the Eucharist. Uh, the Catholic Church holds that position. Sometimes I, I've, I've witnessed it one time, uh, the serving of the Lord's Supper, and they actually handle the bread with great care because it has become the body of Jesus. At the end, they swept it up in a pattern as to not lose part of the body of Jesus. They took the remains of the body of Jesus, put it in the cup, and then the priest drank that, Uh, to dispose of the body and the blood of Jesus. They actually literally teach it becomes uh, the the actual and literal blood and body of Jesus. Let me explain that to you. That is based on a, I'll just say it, silly, uh, uninformed understanding of Scripture. Where do they get that? Uh, It adds a certain uh, layer to the priesthood. It assigns a certain uh, mystique to the priest a level maybe of hierarchy that you have to go to this person that can do this thing, but it's based upon really just a remedial, a silly, uninformed understanding of Scripture. They believe they get this from when Jesus says, take, eat, this is my body. Well, see, that's what he says, and so that's where they get that. Now, here's the crazy thing. The disciples are sitting there, and Jesus is sitting there. There was no disciple that thought they were eating the body of Jesus. He's standing, he's sitting right there. They, they take the, the, the cup, Jesus says, and this is uh, the cup, my blood of the new covenant. Uh, there is nobody there that thought that's the blood of Jesus. He is there, he is not bleeding. There was no one that had that understanding. That is a really uninformed interpretation of scripture. I'll just tell you, I think it's grotesque and I think it robs the meaning away uh, from the event. Here's another question while we're on it. Who should participate in the Lord's Supper? Okay, these are the ordinances to the church. The church is to to observe this. Who should participate in the Lord's Supper? All right, here's who should participate in the Lord's Supper. Baptized believers in Jesus Christ alone should participate in the Lord's Supper. It holds, now think about the meaning we just talked about. It holds this meaning for them. They've put their faith in Christ. They understand his body was given for them. His blood was shed for the remission of sin. And so they understand uh, the picture, the the symbolism going on here. Not only that, it is an ordinance given to the church. It wasn't given to non-believers. It wasn't given to just everybody. It was given to the church. It is for baptized believers of Jesus Christ. All right, here's kind of a, Baptist, Baptist deal, you may know what I'm talking about. Uh, 
communion. That's what we call it, the Lord's Supper. Now, there is the idea of a closed communion or an open communion. There, were, there was, I remember uh, as a young kid, that was much discussion. Churches took a lot of, um, I, I guess, uh, pride in the fact that we have an open communion and we have a closed communion. Uh, a closed commun communion means this. It is only open to the members of this church. We know who the members are. We know their profession of faith in Christ. And so in our church, the only people that can observe the Lord's Supper with us are members of this church. That is a closed communion. There are many churches uh, that, that used to follow that, probably not so many anymore. In open communion, there's two versions of that. They would say any Baptist can participate. So if it's Christmas time and your uncle's in town, they go to the First Baptist Church of, of somewhere, hey, they can come and they can participate with us. That's an open communion. There's another idea that a person from any church, a baptized follower of Jesus Christ, uh, by any stripe, they're here with us and they can participate with us. Uh, several different ideas. Here's another question. What about kids? I think when we haven't taught much on this, uh, especially as folks are, are trusting in Christ and, and, and turning to Christ and it's a new thing for them, uh, sometimes it's not clear. What about kids? Here's, here's the, the, the truth about kids. Kids should not participate in the Lord's Supper until they are saved, until they have made a decision to follow Jesus Christ and follow themselves in believer's baptism. Now, let me tell you this. I think if we're not smart, we're missing many great opportunities when the church observes the Lord's Supper. This is a great time to tell your kids why we're doing this. You know why we're doing this? Because Christ told us to do this to remember his death. It's a great time to tell them why. I'm going to tell you, it's a great time to tell them why you're not. Hey, you're not doing this because we're praying there's a time when you put your faith in Jesus and you will have trusted Jesus and you'll be able to do this with us as the church, uh, it's a great time to teach and explain what it means. Kids should not until they're saved and baptized. Here's another question. How often should the church observe the Lord's Supper? How often should the church? Now, there are some, and here, this is a Baptist uh, reality, there are some that do it very frequently. Uh, there are some that do it every time the church would meet. There are some that do it every Sunday morning when the church meets, and there are others that do it not so frequently. Now, there are churches that do it yearly. There are churches that do it uh, quarterly. There are churches that do it monthly. Uh, there's churches that do it on special occasions. Uh, there are churches that have a mix of that. Let me say this. Many that do it very frequently do it because they believe they're receiving God's grace or salvation in doing it. And so, you know what, man, I've had a rough week and had a lot of sin this week. I want to be sure and take, take that on Sunday. We'll, we'll fix that up. And so they believe they're receiving some piece of God's grace, and so they want to do it frequently. Here's, here's my opinion on the matter. How often should we do it? And, I, and you may disagree with that. that this, that'll be fine. Here's my opinion. My opinion is this, not so frequently that it loses its deep meaning, which we ought not do it so often that it just becomes routine. I, I've been in churches, and it's just like we pass the offering here, we take the Lord's Supper here, we don't think about it. We don't, we, you know, I can be talking to you about, hey, 
Uh, Texas shouldn't be in the Final Four. They shouldn't be in the playoffs. There's no way. Uh, Florida State got robbed. Take this, take that, and we just pass it down the aisle. We should not do it so frequently that it loses its deep meaning. But we should not do it so infrequently that we forget its deep meaning. As Christians, we ought to remember the death of Christ. We ought to remember our, our salvation was bought in a great price, and it was a bloody price paid by our Savior Jesus. And so it should not be so infrequent uh, that we forget its deep meaning, remembering the death of Christ. Uh, we as a church, we're going to do it next Christmas Eve, uh, the 24th uh, Sunday morning in our morning service. Let me say this as well. This uh, is not sacramental. Be sure and understand that. But it also is a sermon. It is symbolic. It is portraying something. It is teaching something. And when we observe the Lord's Supper, it tells and it proclaims a story. If you have participated in the Lord's Supper, if you're participating in the Lord's Supper, uh, you are preaching a sermon. I believe it ought not be done flippantly. I believe it ought not be done happenstance. I believe it ought to be done in great reverence. Now, we are telling the story of Jesus, teaching about his death when we observe the Lord's Supper. All right, so the, the fourth distinction are the two ordinances of the church. I'm going to go ahead, and we've got a little bit of time. I'm going to throw the fifth distinctive in tonight. I think it goes with it. The fifth distinctive, the, that, the fourth distinctive, we observe the two ordinances of the church. The fifth distinctive of the Baptist church is a saved and baptized membership. The, the fifth distinctive is a saved and baptized church membership. Now, those could be two separate things. I know some churches that say we have a saved membership and we have a baptized membership. Or you could lump them together and say uh, that those are one thing, a saved and baptized church membership. Let me explain this to you. To be a member of the Baptist church, to be a member of this church, you must be saved. To be a member of the church, you must be saved. Uh, when you are saved, the Bible says that you are submitting to Christ and his headship. When you're saved, you're filled with the Holy Spirit of God. Uh, when you're saved, you're gifted for service in the body. Uh, when you're saved, you're placed in the body, the local church. When, when you're saved, uh, you express the fruit of having been filled with the Holy Spirit of God. And so our membership is to be made up of saved people. Now, what is that process? The process is to be a member of the church, the local church, you have to profess your faith in Jesus. You profess with your mouth the belief of your heart. You calling Jesus Lord. You have to profess your faith in Jesus. Notice when people come to join the church, now there's a couple of ways they can do it. One of them is by the statement of their faith. And what that means is they say, are you saved? Are you a follower of Jesus Christ? They say, yes, I am. That is a statement of their faith. You can join our church on a statement of your faith. Yes, I'm saved. Now they're saying, testifying they're saved. Another way that you can join the Baptist church is in the promise of a letter. This is a Baptist tradition, really. Uh, your former, former church, if it is a Baptist church, they have a letter. You may not know that. You have a letter in your church uh, testifying 
that you told them that you were saved. And so maybe it was when you got saved and were baptized. Maybe it was when you joined their church. But you have a letter in that church testifying that you told them you were saved. And so we would send to that church and say, hey, these folks have decided to join our church. And they would send a letter saying, well, they are saved members in good standing of our church. Here's a problem. And I want to go ahead and just tell you this. What's the deal with that? Here is a problem. A problem exists when there are people hiding in the church and posing in the membership of the church who are not saved. Maybe they've been here for 50 years. Maybe their grandparents and their great-grandparents went here, but but they've never personally put their faith in Jesus Christ. Maybe they joined and they just fell in somehow and they are a member of the church, but they are not saved followers of Jesus Christ. And let me tell you what happens when that happens. We we see it. Uh, They are not profitable to the church. Uh, They're not serving in the giftedness of God. When you're saved, God gifts you for service in the church. They do not have that gift. And then here's what I've also found. Because they are not saved, they do not act like saved people. And so that means they are usually, usually divisive, foul, and antagonistic to the mission and the work of Christ in the church. They're not on the mission of Christ because Jesus is not their Lord and Savior. Guess what that causes? Problems in the church. Now, usually those folks are very loud, and sometimes folks that have the fruit of the Spirit, they just say, well, I don't want trouble. I'll be quiet here. And those folks, lost folks, can take control of a church. Now, the church is to be made up of saved followers of Jesus Christ. The second part of that, in addition to that, or with that, if we're going to lump it together, is they are to be baptized uh, within believers' baptism. So a member of our church, they are to be saved, and they are to have participated in believers' baptism. Again, that means by immersion, uh, not as part of their salvation, but testifying uh, to their salvation. That is who we are, what we believe as Baptists. You are actually baptized into our fellowship. So, if you were baptized with a different understanding of baptism, so you came and said, I wasn't baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. I was baptized in a oneness Pentecostal church. Well, I was baptized in the name of Jesus. Or if you said, you know what, I was in a church and I was baptized, but I thought it was actually the part of my salvation. I thought my sins were washed away in the act of baptism. If you have a different understanding of baptism, then we would request you as you join our church uh, to be baptized. Now, I want to I say this, and that is a great thing. That is an awesome thing. That's a good thing. I don't know why we have maybe this, um, this, this idea that baptism is not a good thing. I don't know. Sometimes I finish a sermon or sometimes I baptize folks and I think, I'd like to be baptized again. Uh, Oh, I'd like to do that again. I want folks to know I want it to be loud and big this time. Understand this. It is not embarrassing to be baptized. It is not a hardship to be baptized. It is not a hard duty. Well, that that dadgum church, there's been folks that say, well, I'm going to go somewhere else. I don't want to be re-baptized. It is a joy. Uh, Think about the Ethiopian eunuch. Why can't I? Hey, there's water down there. Why can't I be baptized? I'll tell you a story 
been a long time ago, uh, there was a lady, and she said, you know what, I need to be baptized. And I, I, I didn't understand when I was baptized what it was to be a Christian. I have become a Christian. I understand what it means to be saved. Uh, and my baptism was before that. So I need to be baptized, but I don't want to get my hair wet. So she came to see me about a way to be immersed without going under the water. And so she wanted to see if we could figure out something. And, and this was a thing. I don't know if it's still a thing. Uh, she had a beauty operator. And I don't know if folks still have beauty operators. But I go to my beauty operator every Friday. And I pay $65, and I'm going to tell you what I'm not going to do on a Sunday. I'm not going to get my hair wet and lose that $65. And I love Jesus, and I want the world to know, but maybe we could do to here or to not go all the way back or something. I don't know what we were trying to figure out. But, but she, she said, I don't want to get my hair wet. That went on for a pretty good while. I want to be baptized. I think Scripture tells me I ought to be baptized. Oh, I want to testify the way these other folks are. But I, I, my beauty operator, I'm not going to waste $65. And so she came up with this idea. I'm going to get this big old plastic bag, and I'm going to put it around my hair, and I'm going to cinch it tight, and I'll pull it around a tie knot in it, and I'm going to get baptized, but my hair won't get wet. And I, well, that's fine. Um, I don't know if it counts if you do that, but, but that's fine. And so it was a great day. She was excited. Uh, we'd worked it out. I baptized her. When I baptized her, that big old bag went underwater and then filled up with water. And so now she comes up and she has, it looks like a fishbowl on her head, uh, full of water. And she stands up. And so the beauty operator, that whole deal was messed up. And as she leaves, water's pouring off of her out of her, out of her big old bag. We laughed. She was glad. Uh, let me tell you this. I have never met a person. I have never met a person who regretted following Christ's command and believers' baptism. I've never met a person who says, I wish I hadn't have done it. I've never met a person who says, well, I was sure embarrassed on that day. But I, I've met a, a, a ton of folks that said, you know what, that was an awesome day, an awesome testimony, and I love the fact that I was able to follow Christ and believers' baptism. Another question, we're about to wrap it up. Another question is this, who decides we believe you should have a, a saved membership and a baptized membership. Who decides if you're saved? Who decides if you get to be baptized? Let me tell you this. There are some who really worry about this. Um, who's going to decide if you're saved? What's going to be the process of deciding if you're saved? Who's going to decide who is baptized? Uh, it, I, I don't know. It's a, it's, a, it's a kind of a growing thing. But there are churches now that say, we're going to have an interview process to see if you're saved and to see if we'll baptize you. Uh, it is a growing thing. Uh, we're going to have you write out your testimony. And until you put it in written form and write it out, uh, and, and somehow write it out, that'll prove it. So you write it out, you bring it in, we'll look at your written testimony. There are some say, you got to go before some board. you got to go before elders. you got to meet with the preacher one time, three times. you got to stand on your head somewhere. There are some pastors, listen to this, been going on for a long time, who call for a watching period. And so you come down and you say, well, I've trusted Jesus Christ, praise the Lord. And they say, we rejoice, but we don't believe you. And so we're going to watch you for three months to see if you're regenerate. We're going to watch you for six months to see if you're 
regenerate. I read of a pastor, he's a famous pastor. Uh, you'd recognize his name if I said it. He would not let his kids be baptized for years because he wanted to watch his kids because nothing would have been as embarrassing to have baptized his own kids professing faith in Christ and then somewhere fall into sin somewhere and would have made him look terrible. And so he said, yes, I believe you're saved, but I'm going to watch you for a little while to see if I can believe you. Are you regenerate? Have you sinned too much? What's your, what's your life look like? Who decides if you're saved and who decides if you're ready for baptism? Here's my answer. My answer is this. You do. You do. Uh, now listen, you come in, tell me, I, you come up here, you come in my office, I've, I've trusted Christ. I'm going to listen to you. Uh, I'm going to help you make sure that you understand biblically uh, what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. We may look at some verses. What does the Bible say? Uh, we can talk about it, especially with, with young people, with kids. Uh, what does the Bible say it means to be saved? But I want to tell you this. If you tell me that you've trusted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, and if you tell me you're requesting believers' baptism and testimony to it, uh, I'm going to take you at your word. We're going to fill up the baptistry and we're going to baptize you. Here's what I've found. I'm going to be honest with you. you. You may not believe this, but folks will lie about it. Folks can pretend. Uh, folks can write it out. You, you know you can write it out and still lie in a written testimony? Uh, and, and, and so there's folks, you know what, you can come and you can say all the right answers. You can memorize all the right answers. I believe this and this and this, and it not be the truth of your heart. You can be fraudulent in that. But I want to tell you this. But if you are lost... Uh, when the church baptizes you, let me tell you what you are when we finish. You're just as lost as when the church, when you came to the church and said you need to be baptized. The pastor is your help. The pastor is your guide. The pastor's not your gatekeeper. You're not going to find that in the New Testament. You tell me you've put your faith in Jesus Christ. I'm going to help you see what the Bible says. You tell me I want to be baptized to show the lost world that. I'm not the gatekeeper. We're going to fill up the baptistry and trusting the profession of your own mouth, uh, we're going to baptize you to the glory of Christ. All right, we're going to stop right there tonight. I'm going to ask if you'll stand, please. Let's pray. Dear Father, we come. We're thankful for your word, for your truth. I pray, Lord, that we as a people, we want to be New Testament followers of Jesus Christ, that we want to do as you've commanded us to do, you have a reason for that. Uh, we're to testify. Uh, we're, 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 to, we're to preach the truth of you and your gospel in these two things. Lord, I pray uh, that we would we'd be faithful as a church, that we'd be useful as a church, that we'd bring glory to Christ as a church. And then, Lord, we're thankful for the blessing of the church. Uh, Lord, we come tonight and just tell you, we're thankful for this past week. We look forward to a new week. I pray that we'll be aware of opportunities all around us that we'll seize the opportunity to point to the, the good news of our Savior, Jesus. I pray for the ladies' event tomorrow night. I pray that the fellowship is awesome, that the food is awesome. More than that, I pray that, that women, uh, ladies, will hear the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ one more time, one more time. And I pray that we're encouraged in that and that someone might find Christ in that. And Lord, I pray for homes here tonight, for kids for grandkids, for our church family. 
uh, hold them up to you as well. We tell you we love you, we praise you, and we worship you. And I pray in Jesus' name, amen.